going to hear part two of the story tonight, Joshua chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible, open up there to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. It's good to see you all here. It's good to be here in a little bit warmer environment than last week. Let's pray one more time together. Lord, as we enter into the study of your word tonight, we pray as Les already did. We just agree with, with his words that, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will give us fresh understanding of your word. And we would see Jesus in these pages and understand what it is you've been saying to mankind through the ages. We pray, Father, for practical insight tonight in a story some 3,500 years old. A story that is true and historical and yet has amazing implications for us. Father, I pray we would learn of these things, that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be wide open, ready to hear and to receive from your Spirit, Jesus, what you have to teach us. I thank you, Father, for your word. pray that we will live by it ever learning to walk by your spirit we pray in Jesus name Amen well as you may recall if you were here Sunday morning Joshua chapter 7 is a troubling story in the Bible story of Achan whose name means trouble and how Achan met his demise in the valley of Achor which means also a troubled place it is a troubling story for there we observe Israel's first defeat in the promised land They have a great victory over Jericho and they immediately turn around and are wiped out, well, laid low at least. 36 men killed, running, fleeing for their lives as the people of Ai, that little city, drives them out. We know, though, that their trouble didn't come from outside, that it wasn't Ai that was the problem. The problem was the enemy within. The problem was the lack of faith. The problem was going about it their own way. And the problem with Achan was that at the battle of Jericho, the Lord had clearly declared that everything was to be haram in the Hebrew, which is under the ban. You're not to take anything for yourself of the men, the women, any, any human or, or animals, or even the treasures, silver and gold. These things were for the treasury of the Lord. They were devoted to destruction. But again, along comes trouble. Achan was tempted. He was enticed by his own lust. And his lust conceived and gave birth to sin, and his sin brought about his death. It also brought about the death of 36 men who died in that battle going up against Ai, not realizing that the Spirit of God was not with them. Achan and his sons and daughters also died punished for this sin. But in this we see a typical pattern. In James chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The Lord doesn't mince words about the troubling pattern of sin. Again, we talked about Sunday, the way sin tends to work. Often it's the eyes that are enticed. We see, as Achan saw, when we covet, we take, and then we try to bury the whole thing. But the reality is, as much as we may think we can bury sin, sin buries the sinner. Sin is the one that does the burying. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verse 12, Who can discern his errors? He's crying out from the heart of man. 
Who can discern his errors, acquit me of hidden faults, and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins? Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. He's saying, there's stuff I don't even know I'm doing wrong, and I'm doing wrong. Lord, keep me from these things. And as we talked about on Sunday morning, the inherent part of man holds that sin nature. And it's because of the sin nature and the evil that is in man that we need a Savior, that we need Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can be so good at concealing our sin, at rationalizing it away, at setting it aside and acting as though it's not really sin. We rename it, we rethink it, we try and say it's something other than what it truly is. And when we do that, we fool ourselves. And we convince ourselves we have not sinned when indeed we have. And I can relate to the psalmist. Who indeed can discern his errors? And how can we keep from deceiving ourselves? The context of Psalm 19 gives us a clue about this. Beginning by saying, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. The psalmist goes on and says, but listen, the law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, even the fear of the Lord, it's clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, Psalm 19.11 tells us, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Keeping the law? Rick? I thought you were all about grace. I thought at the bridge we teach grace, not the keeping of the law. Well, if you've been around here very long, you know exactly our thoughts on that. You know exactly what the Bible talks about and teaches regarding that. You don't keep the law to get grace. You get grace and are empowered then to follow after the law. To meditate on the things of the law. Not because the law saves you, but because you have been saved. You desire to follow the ways of the Father. You desire to keep His law knowing that He has already saved you thanks to Jesus' blood on that cross at Calvary. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, how can my words and my meditations, meditations be acceptable? As I meditate on the law. That's the context of the whole thing, Psalm 19. I'm meditating on the law. I'm thinking about the words of God. I'm pouring over Scripture. And in the meantime, Scripture is pouring over me. As Paul says, I'm being washed with water in the Word. And it cleanses and it changes. Cheryl and I were just talking this afternoon about the fact that I don't know how people do it when they stop fellowshipping, when they avoid Bible study, when they step back from it and say, I'm going to go my own way. I can barely make it from Wednesday night to Sunday morning. I was telling Cheryl, I, I said, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I full-time spend my time studying the Word, teaching the Word, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, in worship, three, four times a week with the body, and then in small groups and in individual contact constantly, and I find, man, give me one day without opening the Bible, and I'm already veering off. We need the Word. The Word changes, it grows, it purifies, it it builds us up. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. 
With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And this is a truth. It's an absolute gain. The more I'm in the word, the more victorious I am over the enemy within. The more the word washes over me, the more victory I have over that sin nature that I battle every day. And so tonight, as we go on into Joshua chapter 8, we will see victory. Joshua clues in. The people get it. And they turn around. And though the sin of Achan was troubling, and even the death of Achan and his family, and how that all came about, it's troubling. It's a difficult passage. And yet victory is right around the corner. It's on the horizon. And as applicable as Achan's trouble and Israel's lessons were in chapter 7, So the Lord offers incredibly practical insights here in chapter 8 into living what we've been talking about, the Spirit-filled life. That's the, the hidden undercurrent, if you will, of the book of Joshua. It is a teaching on how to live the Spirit-filled life. How to enter the promised land. How to take possession of the promises of God. How to live filled with the Spirit. And you may recall that Joshua, the son of Nun, was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a hint right there that his, that his leading of Israel is going to be a Spirit-filled leader, leading. And we're going to see throughout these pictures of living in this spirit-filled life. I ended with a question on Sunday morning. And the question is simply this. What do you do if you sinned and you quench the spirit? Because we can do that. I'll say this probably once or twice tonight. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit and still quench the Holy Spirit. You can have had at some point in your Christian life the baptism of the Holy Spirit and yet ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. We can do that. What do we do if we have? What if we do if the sin in our life quenches the Spirit and His work in our life? Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, and already the chapter is better than chapter 7 was. Remember chapter 7 started out with but. And it's a big but. It really is. Coming out of chapter 6 into chapter 7. Chapter 6 was glorious and victorious. And now, but, chapter 7 has to happen. And yet, chapter 8 starts out, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot a few things down tonight. And the very first thing, when you have fallen flat on your face, when you have sinned, when you realize you've quenched the Spirit and His work in your life, number one, don't be dismayed. Press on. Don't be dismayed. I love the Lord's words to Joshua. Don't fear or be dismayed. Press on, Joshua. Now is the time to move forward, not to look back, not to wallow in all the things that have happened, but to go forward. Don't be dismayed. Press on. I've told you before, I'm coaching my son's fourth grade basketball team. And these are some tough lessons for Hayden. Because Hayden doesn't like getting bumped around or bruised or fouled, which happens constantly with fourth grade basketball. It's pretty much one massive moving foul up and down the court. And I'm trying to explain this to him, that this is what happens. And and it's funny because he'll get fouled and he'll be crying, oh, my arm, my arm. And then I'll watch him go down the other end of the court and just go, bam, you know, and knock some other kid down. What? What? What'd I do? You know, foul. (laughs) He fouled me. It's a moving foul. Just this last Saturday, Hayden was out on the court, and the kid elbowed him in the stomach, and he's out there, and he comes over to, you know, dad, coach dad, which is an interesting dynamic just right there, and he comes over to me, he's cut his stomach, (laughs) you can't go on, you know, and I, it's so hard because there's the compassionate side of me that wants to go, oh, come here, son. 
me rub your tummy and we'll get a glass of milk and make it feel better. And then there's the coach that wants to say, take a lap. You're hurting? Walk it off. You know, his leg could be broken. Walk it off. You know, that's what a coach says. And I have this heart, you know, I'm looking at, at Hayden, and what I had to do, he was, he's on the floor, he's on his knees, hands on his stomach, and I just said, get up, son. Can I go out, Dad? No, you're going to play the rest of the quarter. Get up, son. And that's what the Lord is saying to Joshua. Do not be dismayed. Get up, son. Come on, press on, go forward. This is one of, by the way, the greatest single French benefits of grace. French benefit? Yeah, the benefit of grace is salvation. But there are all kinds of fringe benefits that find their ways into our lives. And one of the greatest is simply this. Even though I may sin, I can move on. I can get up because I have been saved and graced by God. I can forget what lies behind because God has already forgotten what lies behind. Isn't that great news? That the very sin you committed yesterday or the day before or last week, that you're still working over in your head and, and trying to get forgiveness by our Lord. I'm just so sorry about that. I wish I could get let this thing go. He's going, what thing? I don't even know what you're talking about. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3 verse 13, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's awesome. And you might say, well, yeah, but that's Paul, the apostle. Of course he presses on. He's not like us. Yeah, read Romans chapter 7. When Paul says, who will deliver me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so Paul understands and he says, here's what you do. You press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is no wallowing in the spirit-filled life. It's kind of like there's no crying in baseball. (laughs) Have you seen A League of Their Own? One of my favorite lines in one of my favorite movies is when Tom Hanks comes out and the girl on the girls' baseball team is crying. And he walks up and he goes, are those tears? Are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. He just doesn't even get it. He can't comprehend someone crying on the baseball field. And gang, in the same way, there is no wallowing in the spirit-filled life. Get up. Press on. Don't be dismayed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Who has done that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ pulled that one off. The Holy Spirit testifies to us, For after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I'm not going to remember the things that are of your past. I'm not going to remember the things that you did. The sins that you committed. How is that possible, Lord? Because there's a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. And the Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 10.18, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering? No, because Jesus offered once and for all on the cross of Calvary. So do not be dismayed. The offering has been given in Jesus Christ. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. But we can press on because of it. Do not fear or be dismayed, the Lord says to Joshua. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. 
See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Verse 2. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. And I think, oh, if only Achan had waited for the Lord. Because Achan decided he wanted some of what he thought was spoils, which were not spoils, they were the devoted things to the Lord. If he could have waited one battle, he would have gotten spoils. He would have received of, of the spoils of, of AI. He would have gotten something. He could have proudly, by the way, worn the spoil around the camp. Remember the mantle of Shinar? It's the mantle of Babylon in chapter 7. It's one of the things that Achan stole and buried under his tent. He'll never be able to wear that thing. Maybe around the tent, but he couldn't wear it around the camp because it was a secret sin. It was a hidden thing. He couldn't proclaim it. And yet now, had he waited along with everyone else who fights against AI, he could wear those spoils. He could proudly march about camp and go, See, we won! Victory! Check it out! He couldn't do that with Jericho. From here on out, by the way, the Lord gives Israel the spoil of every enemy. But notice here, right in the first two verses of this chapter, who is calling the shots again? It's the Lord. It's not Joshua. It's not the people. It's not their spies and their strategists. It's the Lord. Chapters 5 and 6, remember Jesus was there, the captain of the Lord's host, fights against Jericho for Joshua and the people. And then, of course, there's the big buzz of chapter 7. Joshua and the people go up against Ai, and the Lord is not consulted. And Ai was an easy battle. Why bother the Lord with the small stuff? We'll cover that. We, we will take care of it. No need to call in Eliezer. Remember Eliezer, the high priest, who Joshua was supposed to consult. And they're supposed to come before the Lord together and pray to the Lord and seek His will. They didn't do that the first time they went up against Ai. By the way, does anyone recall what Eliezer's name means? Miriam's <laughs> going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God helps. Eliezer, the high priest who Joshua was supposed to go to to pray to the Father, his name means God helps. What did Jesus say? It reminds me of something. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And Eliezer is a shadowy picture with Joshua in this book of the Holy Spirit. Eliezer, God helps. He is my helper. The Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, is the helper of the believer today. Always with us. Always there to be consulted as we go into battle. But Joshua didn't consult Eliezer, so the Spirit was quenched. You can do that. You can quench the Spirit in your life. You can even have His power upon you, and still you can effectively shut down the work of the Spirit in your life, which is why Paul says, and I repeat this verse again, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But Joshua did. He ignored the prophetic. He didn't take the time to go and see what the Lord had to say, and so the Spirit was quenched. Numbers 27, verse 18, tells us Joshua was a spirit-filled man and that he was given the counsel of Eliezer and yet, though he was spirit-filled and though Eliezer was there, the counsel was not used. 
And so Israel lost that battle shamefully. But now, Joshua is not only spirit-filled, and listen to this, it's important, not only is Joshua spirit-filled, once again, Joshua is spirit-led. It means nothing to be spirit-filled if you're not spirit-led. I think sometimes people in their spirit-filled lives, in their Christian lives, will spend so much time looking back to the time of becoming spirit-filled that they forget that they are spirit-led right now, today. I seek the leading of the Holy Spirit in this moment, not 10 years ago when I received Him, not 20 years ago when I received Him, not last month when I received Him. Today, I want to be led by the Spirit. And that's the second thing to jot down. First one, don't be dismayed, press on. Second one, press on by pressing in. Are you, am I, Spirit-filled? Great. But the most imminent question is, are you Spirit-led? Are you pressing on by pressing into the Lord, seeking Him, finding out what it is He desires to do in this season of your life? Going on in verse 3, So Joshua rose up with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men. How many men did he send up against Ai the first time? Very few. Very few. 3,000. So now he's just, he's just done that by 10 times. 30,000 men now go up. And Joshua sends them valiant warriors. He sent them out at night. Verse 4 says he commanded them saying, See, you're going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out to meet us, as at the first, we will flee before them. <laughs> they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They're fleeing before us, as at the first. <laughs> Just like last time. So we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. I love this story. Do you see the difference between... Joshua's strategy and the Lord's. In chapter 7, Joshua's strategy was the enemy was small, we'll send in Israel light. Israel light, Israel light. We're going to send in, you get it? And we're just going to send in a few of Israel. We're going to go small because we don't really need to waste our resources. That was Joshua's strategy in chapter 7. Chapter 8, the Lord says the enemy is the enemy. Send the whole army and wipe them out. And it doesn't matter if the enemy looks small. Take them on big time. All your resources, Joshua, go get them. We often think like Joshua did the first time around. It's the I can handle it syndrome and it's dangerous. That's a little temptation, but it, you know, I can deal with it. And it's the little ones that stick us. It's the little ones that knock us down. It's not the big ones. We've talked about this before. The big temptations, those big sins, we look at those and go, oh, no way. They scare me. I'm not going to go near that. But the little temptations, the ones that I think I can handle, I'm okay there. And that's when we fall. Press on by pressing in. Number three, don't toy with the enemy. Don't toy with him. Go hard or go home. Get ready to fight. Take them on heavily or don't take them on at all. This time Joshua sets an ambush ten times greater than the whole army sent the first time. Give it all you've got. Trust in the leading of the Spirit wholeheartedly and don't play around with sin. Now look at verse 8. Then it will be when you have seized the city, you shall set the city on fire. I like that. Set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. May that be true, gang, for Oak Harbor. And Anacortes. 
Coopville and Mount Vernon and Bo Edison and Burlington and Cedar Willie and every surrounding township in this area. May we set these cities on fire by our following after the Holy Spirit. May these cities be set on fire for Jesus Christ as we refuse to hold back, as we refuse to toy with the enemy. Because, gang, the enemy's intentions are well known. We know exactly what the enemy wants to do, don't we? John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 10.10 10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And there's only one way to deal with the enemy, the full barrage and power of the Holy Spirit. I would say coupled with the word of the Lord, the sword. No toys. You don't want to play with the enemy. You don't want to toy with the enemy. Now listen to this, and it's interesting. It's a key insight, I believe, to walking in the Holy Spirit. If you compare the battle of Jericho and Ai, just listen to a few points on how they're different. Jericho happened during the day. Ai was a battle. They were taken at night. Jericho, Israel is united as they march around. Against Ai, they're divided, as you'll see in a moment, in three different places, coming at Ai uniquely divided. Jericho is a great miracle. Ai is a great military maneuver. Now the Lord leads and the Lord instructs and Joshua follows the plan the Lord gives him. But it's still a stunning military victory whereas Jericho the walls just fell down. Amazing. Jericho was assaulted openly. Ai was assaulted by ambush. These are two different battles. What's the point? In the spirit fed, in the spirit, well spirit fed, that works too. In the spirit led life, in the spirit led life, the Lord fights different wars different ways it's not always the same he doesn't always use the same tactics which is good because it keeps us light on our feet different wars different ways that's number four in living a spirit filled life hour by hour day by day the person who is walking living by the Holy Spirit is the person who's asking Lord what are you doing now what are you doing today not what did you do yesterday the person walking with the Spirit is asking, Jesus, what are you doing here? Not, what did you do there? For God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, Isaiah 55, 8. And that's why when we look at the book of Acts, and we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in numerous examples throughout the book of Acts, as we looked at a few weeks ago, we see that every single time it's different. It's not the same each time. And the Spirit will function differently in different places, in different times, with different people, and even in your own life. Unfortunately, in the church today, we see powerful movements become impotent monuments because we try to reproduce something, or import something, or pattern ourselves after anything other than the immediate and present leading of the Holy Spirit. We say, hey, it worked for Rick Warren. Why not do it here? It worked out at Willow Creek. Let's do the same thing here. It worked down there or over there. We see these other churches. And so, and what do you see of the churches around? You see signs going up and it's another campaign. that You know that they bought the materials and the tapes and the videos and the packages that they got from another church. And it worked really well there. And churches up here in the north or northwestern corner of Washington are trying to figure out why is it just not working here? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't work the same way. 
in the same in, in different places, different ways, different wars. By the way, the last six words of a dying church. Have you ever heard this one? We've always done it this way. You know, a church is heading down when they're saying, "But this this is how we do it." Yeah. Well, how's the spirit want to do it today? Maybe it's different than how you did it last year, or three years ago, or ten years ago. Different wars, different ways. Go on to verse nine. So Joshua sent them away, and they went um, and they went to the place of ambush, and remained between Bethel and Ai, and on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Verse 10, Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. Verse 13, He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush, in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, with its rear guard on the west side of the city, and Joshua spent the night in the midst of the valley. So now they've got, if you, if you do the numbers and follow this through, they've got approximately 25,000 men set to ambush the city from the north side. And in brilliant military strategy, Joshua takes 5,000 of the original 30,000 and puts them over on the west side, between Ai and another city they want to conquer, eventually Bethel. Why would he do that? So that Ai cannot call for reinforcements. He's going to block off their escape route. He's going to block off the influx of of people from Bethel as well. So he's got two ambushes set up, north and west, and then they're on that southeastern side of Ai where they can be seen right out there in the open. Joshua and the rest of the uh, sons of Israel in the valley southeast of Ai. It's great planning. It's great thinking. Verse 14 continues on and tells us it came about when the king of Ai saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose up to battle and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle he and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by way of the wilderness you can almost see again another Monty Python scene here run away run away as they run off and the people are chasing after them not knowing the ambush is behind them verse 16 and all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city so that not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel and they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. Verse 18, The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place. And when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. Verse 20, when the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky. Bummer. And they realized they had just been had. And they had no place to flee this way or that. For the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against their pursuers. Number five. As we walk the Spirit-filled life, as we seek to live by the Spirit, pressing into the Spirit, number five, recognize the strategy of weakness. And this is an important one. Recognize the strategy of weakness. The king of Ai assumed that they would just whip Israel like they did before. We'll just take them out. It was easy before. We drove them off, killed 36 guys. Here they come again. We'll just do the same thing. We'll beat them. 
And Satan throughout history has magnificently overplayed his hand in the same way. Again and again and again, Satan thinks he has the Lord cornered or the Lord's plan ready to mess him up. And in that moment, he throws everything he's got into it, not realizing there's an ambush set by the Lord in his wisdom that Satan just couldn't think ahead about. He couldn't plan for. Satan is driven by sin and wickedness. He is a liar, as we already read, and the father of lies, blinded by his evil desire, and he thinks he's got the upper hand. But one strategy Satan never seems to understand is the strategy of weakness. He doesn't get that. He's all about power. And he doesn't get this whole idea of Jesus submitting to death on a cross. That doesn't make any sense. But we got him! Or so he thought. 1 Corinthians 12.9 Paul said, My grace, actually the Lord speaking to Paul said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And this is a strategy that the Lord uses in us and through us very powerfully. We always fight from a position of weakness, for our weakness allows God's power to be at work and His glory to shine through. Man, if we can do something in our own strength, why would anybody praise the Lord? But if in my weakness something amazing happens, there's no one else to praise but the Lord. People ask me about the bridge from time to time, and I say, hey, this thing's growing, and it's obvious why it's growing. Because anyone who spends any time around me knows there's no other way it could be growing. (laughs) It is the power of the Lord working Himself out in our weakness. It's what He does. Back in the mid-1940s, Satan's attempt to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth was seemingly unstoppable in that Holocaust. There was a point there where it looked as though Judaism and the Hebrew people would not survive. But his attack, his overplaying his hand, yielded something absolutely unthinkable. Even Bible scholars didn't predict or expect this one. The beginning of the modern state of Israel. A foothold in the Middle East for the Jewish people. But there's a greater example you well know of Satan misunderstanding that strategy of weakness that God uses so well. 2 Corinthians 13.4 tells us indeed Christ was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because the power of God is directed to you, Paul says. Man, I'm weak. And if you're feeling weak in your life, praise the Lord. You are the perfect vessel for Him to work through. If you're a little shaky on your feet, a little unsure of yourself and your faith, maybe you feel like you're a baby Christian. Hallelujah, praise God. He's going to do something great in you. It's when we stand tall and think that we've got it all worked out and we've got the power to make it happen. Man, those are the people I feel sorry for because they will miss the true power of the Lord working out in weakness. Look at verse 15. Back there for a second. There's something you got to see. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by way of the wilderness. Joshua, beaten. Joshua, beaten. And in fact, our Joshua appeared to be beaten, didn't he? 
Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Who is Isaiah talking about there? Jesus Christ 750 years before Jesus came on the scene in human flesh the power here of prophecy it's amazing as we look back and hear this description of the crucifixion by Isaiah speaking of Jesus as Jesus hung on Calvary's cross he appeared to be he seemed to be beaten that day just as Joshua and the children of Israel fled from Ai and appeared to be beaten But there was an ambush, wasn't there? There was an ambush with Jesus. He was on the cross. Satan thought, I've got him. Finally, I've won. And even the disciples, they fled by way of the wilderness. The crucifixion happened outside the city, and as the disciples fled, that's where they headed. Get away. Hide. But the battle against AI pictures another day as well. Jesus appeared to be beaten on the cross. The disciples fled and yet we know there was an ambush, a holy ambush as Jesus resurrected on the third day back to life in all the power and glory of God. And the devil realized he overplayed his hand. But Israel gang will again appear to be beaten. And again will flee by way of the wilderness and Satan will think, I won, I finally got him. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 says, You will flee. By the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And there's a time, very soon I believe, a time coming when Israel will flee. When the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem will see and recognize Antichrist and all of his power coming against Jerusalem, coming against the Jews, and they're going to flee. And in that marvelous, wonderful moment... Jesus sets an ambush. Antichrist is in the middle of the fray. The battle's intense. It's raging. And Satan's thinking, I finally got this earth to blow itself apart. This is wonderful. And suddenly, ta-da, in the clouds, here comes the Lord. What an ambush that's going to be. Just when Satan thinks we're beaten. In our weakness, living by the Spirit, the power of the Lord comes riding in. Hey, Satan is stronger than all of us put together, but he's a 98-pound weakling compared to God. He may be able to wield all kinds of power over humanity, but gang, when we walk with the Spirit of the Lord, He can't touch us. Because we have a power that He does not understand. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. You've heard that verse before. Can you get your arms around it? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Tell you what, if you've got a particular sin struggle in your life, maybe you just need to be repeating this verse. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. There are temptations out there. There are struggles. There are full-on barrage attacks from the enemy. And yet greater is he who is in me. i got nothing to be afraid of. I have nothing to worry about when I am focused on the Spirit of Jesus Christ who is in me functioning through me in all of his power verse 21 so when Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended they turned back and slew the men of Ai 
The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when all Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. I think Joshua learned something from his mentor Moses. Remember that picture back in Exodus 17? Israel was fighting against the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been picking at them from behind on their whole entire journey through the wilderness. Every now and then just attacking and finally said, Moses said, we're going to turn and fight in this valley. And Moses goes up on the big hill. You remember the story? He raises up his hands. And as long as his hands were up, Israel was victorious. But as his hands began to come down, as he began to get weak, Israel started to lose. So he gets Joshua and, and Joshua and, I guess it was the high priest at the time, right? It was Aaron and her. You're right, thank you. Aaron and her on either side of him, kind of his and her. That's right, that's how I remember that. Aaron and her are on either side of him, holding up his arms so that his arms stayed aloft, and Israel was victorious. Which, total side note, not, not even part of our study tonight, but arms raised aloft to the Lord, it's a picture of worship. As we worship, we're victorious. As our eyes are focused on the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ, who we spent time worshiping tonight. We have victory in that gang. But he held up his arms and Joshua did the same thing. He held up the spear through the whole battle, pointed toward Ai. Man, that spear was pointed toward victory. And they won. And by the way, our Jesus did the same thing. Our Joshua took the spear. And the spear indicated the victory. From the moment that spear was thrust into the side of Jesus, blood and water poured out, signifying the death of our dear Lord and the moment that He took all of our sins and crucified them with Him on the cross. Victory. Jesus took the spear. Joshua held up the spear. Verse 28 tells us Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. And by the way, the name Ai, I wouldn't recommend you use that name for a city. It means a heap of ruins. I'm not sure who named the city of Ai originally. Not sure what they were thinking, but Ai means a heap of ruins, and that's exactly what it is. I love the wordplay in the Hebrew scriptures. As we saw in chapter 7, Achan meaning trouble in the Valley of Achor, troubling. And here we have Ai, who is a heap of ruins, a desolation, Joshua says, until this day, wiped off the map, even to this day, in the country of Israel, it's a heap of ruins, and indeed, that's what the future holds for our enemy. Satan will end up in a heap of ruin. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 29. 
tells us Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Now, consider this. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 were declared in the law that any man hung on a tree is accursed. And this is the first time we see this law applied here to the king of Ai. They hang him on a tree and he is accursed. But Paul comes along and he reaches way back and draws this law across 1,500 years and applies it to Jesus. He says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we see something here that's amazing to me. Joshua is in and of himself a picture of the Lord, fighting that battle, victorious, taking the spear. Joshua, our Joshua, Jesus. There's that picture there as well. But gang, in this story, the king of Ai is also a picture of Jesus Christ. What? He's the enemy. He's the enemy. How can the enemy be a picture of Jesus? Gang, Jesus was hung on that tree. And when he was hung on that tree, he became the ugliness of sin. He became every bad and rotten and horrible thing that we've done, that humanity has done. He wore that on Himself. Remember what we said before, recognize the strategy of weakness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And when Jesus was hung on that tree, He was beaten. He was disgraced. He was defeated. He took on every form of of un godliness and ugliness and sin that we were responsible for so that we might become victorious thanks to Him. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to fully comprehend the depth of that sacrifice. How deep that really runs. How far it really reaches. It's huge. It's massive. Hold your questions till the end if you can, okay? I don't know, but I know we'll praise Him for it. I know we will always and eternally Praise Jesus for what he did. By the way, they raised a heap of stones over the body of the king of Ai that Joshua says stands to this day. In the same way, they rolled a heaping stone over the tomb of Jesus, didn't they? But it doesn't stand to this day. Spencer asked me Sunday morning, where's the stone? It ain't there. It's lost, broken up, gone. History is not there. This is one heap of ruins that does not stand. Three days later when Jesus busted out of the tomb, there was no heap of ruin. There was a shout of victory in the heavenly places. Verse 30, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the books of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, this is strange. Something to be easy to kind of skip over as we're just reading through the story. After securing AI, I would think that the next military thing to do, the best strategy, would be go straight to Bethel, burn it, wipe it out, and secure Bethel. 
So now you've got Jericho to the south and, and Ai up to the north and then further west you've got Bethel. And so you're beginning to spread out and have some security and strength. But Joshua doesn't do that. After taking Ai, immediately Joshua, who remember is not only spirit-filled but he's also spirit-led right now, he takes the people on a 30-mile pilgrimage up north to a valley. A valley between two mountains. They literally leave Ai, the whole entire lock, stock, and barrel of Israel, after defeating it, and they head north for 30 miles. And when they reach this place, they stop. Today, Mount Ebal is on the west bank. It has an elevation of 3,027 feet. There's a valley of about 500 yards from the foot of Mount Ebal to the foot of the next mountain there, Mount Gerizim, which is about 2,850 feet high in elevation. So both mountains are about the same height. And in between the two mountains, there's a massive and natural amphitheater. Now, if you studied through the book of Deuteronomy with us, you may remember this. Mount Ebal is called the Mount of Cursing. And Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And you can read about that. For at that time, Moses declared, the Lord declared through Moses, you are to go to this valley. And watch what they do in this valley. Verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Moses instructed this. So Joshua goes over there and half the people are on the base of Mount Ebal, the other half on the base of Mount Gerizim, roughly two to three million people here. In the very middle, you've got the Ark of the Covenant with the Levitical priests carrying it. You've got the officers. You've got Joshua there in the middle. Joshua then goes over to Mount Ebal and constructs an altar there. Mount Ebal is the Mount of Cursing. Why does he construct an altar there? Because you need an altar where the curse is. You need a cross where the curse is. And so he constructs this altar on the mountain of cursing. They offer sacrifices. They worship the Lord. And then they go through this whole process of blessings and curses. Joshua would read from Deuteronomy 27 and 28. At that time the scrolls opened them up and read the blessings. And every time he read a blessing, those who were on Mount Gerizim would shout, Amen! Yes! And then he'd read the curses and those over on Mount Ebal would go, Amen, yes. You know, what a bummer to be the cursed as opposed to blessed. That's not what it meant though. They were all going to be blessed if they kept the word of the Lord and cursed if they didn't. And the whole company of Israel were to proclaim that on that day. Before they fight again, they were to stop and praise the Lord and recommit themselves to Him. Now there's a little problem here. A historical problem that's been raised. The fortress city of Shechem guarded the entrance to this valley. If you look on a map, you'll see where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are, and Shechem was right there before you could go in between these mountains. To get there, you have to go through Shechem. And there's an archaeological dig there today called Tel Balata, and it reveals that the city was present and highly populated at the time of Joshua and Israel's conquest. But the Bible only tells us that they destroyed Ai and then gathered up together and went on up there and had the blessings and the cursing and this whole ceremony there in the valley between Ebal and Gerizim. How'd they do it? There's some who would say, well, maybe the Bible's just wrong. 
because somehow they'd have to get through Shechem to perform this ceremony. And yet we see no hint, no suggestion of a skirmish or resistance. Let me give you both a historical and a biblical response to this question. Historically speaking, the king of Jerusalem, along with other kings in the region at this time, wrote letters back and forth. We have copies of some of these letters written back 1,380 years before Christ. They're called the Armana Letters. And on, in these Armana Letters, 13 it's not Armani, we're not talking about a nice suit, we're talking about just letters. The Armana Letters. And you can even see in Joshua chapter 10, the king, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem at the time, you see him writing letters and sending them out to four other kings to gain some help. So we even know biblically that this was going on. But the Armana letters describe the surrender of Shechem to an invading people referred to in the Armana letters as the Habaru. The Habaru. The Hebrews. This invading people that came in at this exact same time that we know the Bible tells us historically Joshua and the Israelites came into the land and the Habaru were dominating The Hebrews were there. And so even in these historical letters, we have an account of the people of Shechem just saying, we surrender, take the city, it's yours, without a fight. They raise the white flag before there's even a battle. And we read of no battle against the city of Shechem in the book of Joshua. And historically, we can see why. Interesting. But why would Shechem surrender to the Habaru, the Hebrews? Why would Shechem surrender without a fight? Why not go ahead and why not try to defend yourself? Well, here's the biblical side of it. And this is interesting. It's actually kind of a new concept to me. There may possibly have already been a remnant of the Jews living in Shechem by the time the Israelites arrived back there. Really? Well, how is that possible? Some scholars believe this. and I, I, What I've been looking at this week, I think there's strong indication for it. Because in Joshua's own lineage, remember Joshua is the tribe of Ephraim. And in the lineage talked about in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, 21 through 28. And you can jot that down, you might want to just read through that. But what we learn in that passage is Ephraim, the son of Jacob, it talks about all of his sons, but he also had a somewhat famous daughter, at least famous in that region. Her name was Shira. Shira, the daughter of Ephraim, in 1 Chronicles 7.24, tells us the following. Ephraim's daughter was Shira, who built lower and upper Beth-horon and Uzzen-Shira. Okay, big deal. Beth-horon and Uzzen-Shira were both cities in that region, right there on and around and connected to Shechem. So his daughter, Ephraim's daughter, Shira, built these cities, developed them, grew them, and, and the family line of Ephraim would have been there in those cities. You may be still saying, so what? So Ephraim was born in Egypt. Ephraim didn't come down out of the land of Israel with Jacob and the 70 people who came down out of Israel into Egypt at the time of the famine. Ephraim and Manasseh were whose sons? Joseph's sons. So Ephraim and Manasseh and their family line, they all would have been in Egypt before Jacob and sons came down to Egypt. And yet we're told that Ephraim's daughter founded some cities back in the promised land. And the only time this possibly could have happened was while the Israelites were sojourning in Egypt. And so there's, there's strong evidence to think that there were some people of Jewish descent, of Hebrew origin, 
of the tribe of Ephraim who were already living in the land who weren't down in Egypt. And when they, it makes sense, think about that, when they come up against Shechem, the Habaru are already known there. And so they say, rather than fight you, we're just going to yield. Interesting thinking. There may have been Jews present in the land even since the early days of Abraham. There may have always been a Jewish presence in the land. Now, why go off on this tangent? Maybe it's a little interesting and curious as we study, but there's a reason for it, gang, and I want you to hear this before we end tonight. Even in the smallest nuances of history, the word is sure. The word is sure. You can count on it. You can trust it. And I have seen it time and time and time again as we are now six books into the study of the Old Testament. How it verifies itself. How history and archaeology continues to bear up the Word of God. And I tell you this to say this last thing. I've given you five things to jot down about the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-filled person. The final one is simply this. The Spirit-filled person always takes God at His Word. Some may say, well, I have the Spirit. Why do I need the Word? Well, I can get further revelations from God without the Word. I don't need Bible studies. I don't need to waste my time in these scriptures. There are other ways I can go. The reality, gang, is the Spirit-filled person always takes God at His Word. Jesus said in John 6, 63, The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. Verse 34, watch what Joshua does. And afterward, they've done the blessing, the cursing, the whole deal. Afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Amazing. They have this victorious battle. And rather than having a wild party celebrating the victory, they gather, they have the ceremony that was commanded, and Joshua goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and reads through the end of Deuteronomy, the whole law as the people stand there. Which people? Verse 35, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read, before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Now Laura, Laura Pierce, our children's director, calls our two to six-year-olds the littles. I love that. She's like, well, this morning the littles were just terrific. The littles did this. Or the little. I love how she calls them the littles. But the littles were there. All of Israel and the kids were there. And there we've got two kids here tonight who are going, when is this guy going to be done? Think about this, you two. Think about this. Joshua read the whole entire law while they sat there going, why did I leave my Game Boy at home? <laughs> Wish I had my DS. Why? Because the word matters. Because it matters. The spirit-filled person takes God at his word. They had just, by the way, heard this entire law read by Moses before he died just weeks before. But it's worth repeating again and again and again because there's victory in these words. There's a promise of eternal life and there is Jesus Christ in this word. And the more you and I are in the word, the more victorious I'm convinced we are going to be. Chapter 9, 
starts out, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. And what's interesting in that little listing, there are six nations listed. The seventh nation, the Girgashites, are no longer mentioned. So it sounds as though the Girgashites have been wiped out. One nation down, six to go. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will take from your word tonight and all the things that you have shown us and all the things we've read and understood and you would, Father, embed these in our hearts and implant them on our minds. May we process and think about and consider your word throughout the week, Lord. And may we recognize, may we recognize the power of your word in our lives and the wonderful working of your spirit through the word and in our hearts tonight, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.